Shalom, friends. Welcome. It is so great to see you all and to learn with you today and with Rev Chaim Obadia. Hi, Rev Chaim. Nice to see you. Shalom, shalom. Good to see you. Great topic today of the book of Job as the guide for Jewish ethics. Going to learn some Torah today, uh, all of us from around the world, wherever we are today. Let me tell you a little bit about Rabbi Chaim Obadia, who many of you know. He was born in Yerushalayim and has spent many years as a rabbi in Sephardic communities in Israel, South America, and the U.S. He was ordained by Chief Rabbi Mordechai Eliyahu and has a B.A. in Talmud from Bar-Ilan University and an M.A. in Near Eastern Languages and Cultures from UCLA. Rav Chaim has been a faculty member at the AJR of California, a non-denominational rabbinical school for over 20 years. He's the founder and director of Torah Ve'ahava, working to build bridges and to revive the inclusive broad horizon approach of golden age Sephirat. As many of you know, Rav Chaim is um, creative and bold and, uh, and broad. And so it is wonderful to learn with you today, the book of Job as the guide for Jewish ethics. Welcome and thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you, Rav Shmuley. Uh, good to be here. Um, so let's let's get right to the point. Um, I, I chose the topic because we are uh, nearing Tisha uh, B'Av. It's the time that we think about morality and about our behavior, and then later on we'll have the Chodesh Shalul and the high holiday. So uh, uh, it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me to teach the class and to see uh, also seeing old friends here. Um, shalom, everyone. So I uh, prepared a. Um, um, a resource sheet on Sepharia for us to look. It's really a very brief excerpt of the book of Eov, which is very long. And I just chose the, those parts that I think uh, could really benefit us. I'll, I'll, I'll fill in the gaps for some, uh, for some parts that are not, uh, uh, not here in the text. And obviously it's, a, it's an invitation for all to go back to this book and, and read it. Uh, it has a bad reputation. This is one of the only books that one is allowed to read on Tisha B'Av. We're not supposed to study Tanakh, but uh, uh, the book of Job, it's okay to read because it's depressing. The, uh, you know, the story of a man who's been targeted by God, suffering uh, immensely, and uh, really, if you know the story, there's no recompensation for Yov. At, uh, at the end of the book, we're being told that uh, all of his possession... Uh, has been reclaimed, he got everything back, and then uh, he had children, but he lost his children in the beginning of the book, so nothing can make up for the loss of children. If really God targeted him and decided to, uh, to, uh, to take his children away, no, nothing can make up for that, unless we say that the story of Eov is a, is, a, is a parable, and that's where I think how we should approach it. But as I said, I want to go a little bit deeper into the book and, and find that um, guide for uh, ethical behavior, which is, I think, um, inextricably entwined with the concept of theodicy. We always identify, uh, associate the book of Yov with the question of theodicy. Tzaddik v'tovlo, tzaddik v'ralo, rasha v'tovlo, why do good people suffer, uh, reward and punishment, etc.? But they're really very closely, uh, th those two questions, the question of theodicy and the question of morality, I think are very closely connected because 
if we think of theodicy as a as a as a um, as a system where for a good deed you're going to be rewarded and for an evil act you're going to be punished, then our whole morality is selfish. We do we do what we do because we want to avoid punishment or to get reward, and not because we believe that morally or ethically a certain thing is justified and this is the right thing to do. And I think that this is the message of the book. So on one hand, uh, the book of Yov handles the question of theodicy. Why do good people suffer? And on the other hand, it offers us a new way to understand the world and the whole system of Torah and mitzvot that leads us to a new understanding of um, the ethical values that the Torah provides. So I'll start by presenting the story. That was an introduction. So I have to start by presenting the story. Um, and reading, as I said, I'm, I'm uh, reading just excerpts that I think are important. I will expand the discussion on it, and then we could... Uh, uh, and feel free to ask questions even during that uh, the talk. If you have something pressing, you could ask, and we'll have at the end also time for a, a Q&A. So the story starts thus, Ishaya Beretz Otsi of Shmo, there was a man in the land of Otz. Uh, I just realized that Otz is like uh, the initials of Ori Litzedek. It's, uh, so maybe there is a relation. Um, but it sounds like a fictitious land. This is that tells us right away. We don't know of a place called Otz. The time is not mentioned. We don't know where he lived, uh, when he lived. That man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. So a perfect person. He's the perfect righteous man. Uh, skipping a couple of verses, he's very wealthy, has uh, seven uh, sons, three daughters. And it was the custom of his sons to hold feasts, each on his set day in his own home. They would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So, and we don't know if that was a daily thing, a weekly thing, a monthly thing, but they had they would take turns and we'd all have feasts together. It's a beautiful, um, cohesive family. They're all celebrating together. And then uh, we read in verse 5, when a, when a round of feast day was over, John would send word to them to sanctify themselves. And rising early in the morning, he would make burnt offerings, one for each of them. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned and blasphemed God in their thoughts. This is what Job always used to do. So the interesting thing, in Hebrew, it's not blasphemy, it's beracha. Right? Perhaps my children have sinned and they blessed God in their heart. And blessing is a euphemism for cursing. So we see from the very beginning of the, of the book that the Yov has that fear of cursing God. And this is a, I think it's a bit surprising, right? Why is the Yov so concerned about cursing God? Also, there's an essential thing missing in the Pasuk. In this story, uh, and if someone wants to point it out, I'll ask you, look at the, look at the verbiage. Uh, Nehama Levovich pointed out that it's always important to look at the verbs of, uh, of action in a Pasuk that direct us to the core uh, idea of the story. So when we look at this Pasuk, Pasuk 5, when the round of feast day was over, Job would send word to them to sanctify themselves, and rising early in the morning, he would make a burnt offering, one for each of them. So if you look at the verbs in the Hebrew, Vayishlah Yov, he would send word, Vayikadeshem 
and he would sanctify them or prepare them, right? Tell them to be ready. He would rise up in the morning. And he would bring sacrifices, right? So what's missing from this picture, from this story? His children, they're inactive. They're not doing anything. He is bringing sacrifice for them. And that's a point that we have to remember that uh, Iov is the one bringing sacrifice for his children for fear that they have turned against God and cursed God, as he says. Um, and that's, that's his custom. Uh, then I'm skipping a couple of verses in which we are told that the angels are traveling the, the earth and come back to report to God. And among them, there's the adversary or the Satan, as he's called here. Uh, later on, Satan became a, a synonym for the angel of death or the evil inclination. But here is just the adversary. Satan is the uh, like basically the prosecution. So uh, a cursory reading of the story, we think that the, the adversary is, is evil, that he targets Iov, that he wants to uh, make him suffer. But when we read it carefully, we see that what happens is this. The Lord says to the adversary, have you noticed my servant Job? There is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. That's not a good thing. Too much, too much praise is not, is not a good thing, especially when you're talking to the head of the IRS, right? Uh, the God is the ultimate, uh, God is talking to the, to the adversary and says, look, this is a perfect person, right? He has, he has never sinned. So obviously he's the one who would trigger this whole process, right? This whole uh, uh, journey where Eov is, uh, is being tried to make, to see if he would sin or not. And he's, so he's talking to the adversary, and the adversary has an answer. In verse 9, we read, the adversary answers, does Job not have a good reason to fear God? Why? It is you who have fenced him around, him and his household, and all that he has. You have blessed his efforts so that his possessions spread out in the land. But lay your hand upon all that he has, and he will surely blaspheme you to your face. So God presents a challenge. God is the one who starts that process, who targets Eov, and the adversary plays along. He's just, he's just uh, complying with God's invitation. He's not the bad guy, in other words. I don't say who, not that I'm saying that, you know, the other side is the bad guy, but this really, we'll see there's no good and evil here, um, at least at that level of the celestial realm. So uh, the Lord replied to the adversary, see all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand of him, on him. The adversary departed from the presence of the Lord. So here and now the, the sort of the game uh, starts with Iov as the, the main character. So here I skipped a couple of psukim in which we're told that Iov receives the, the, uh, the news the, uh, until today, in Hebrew, the idiom uh, for uh, horrible news is besoat Eov. That the, the news of Eov, just like Eov being told that all of his cattle, his camels, all of his possessions were taken. And uh, before one messenger has a chance to finish uh, delivering his message, the next one comes with a, with the worst message. And finally, the last and most devastating one is that as his children, his seven sons and three daughters were having a feast, 
in the house of the eldest brother, uh, a mighty wind shook the place and the walls collapsed and killed all of his children. And what it is, what is uh, Eov's response? Job arose, tore his robe, cut off his hair, and threw himself on the ground and worshipped. So he prostrated himself, and he said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is a a phrase that we associate with uh, today, I think most of us, with uh, with burial, with funerals, right? Uh, it is included in the prayer that we call Tzidduk Adin, the acceptance of divine uh, judgment. And Eov here seems to be the perfect believer. Despite everything that befell him, he does not lose his faith. He still believes in God. He still accepts everything um, obediently and he says in a way this is what God has given me I have enjoyed it for so long and now God decides to take it away I cannot complain however the author adds one more verse here for all that Job did not sin nor did he cast reproach on God now the, even though we read it, the translation, the word tifla is interesting because it's the, uh, it spells, it, it is spelled exactly like tefila, prayer. But here it's tifla from the word tafel, meaning uh, something with no value or with no flavor, um, useless. So Yov did not attribute any. Um, vain actions or useless actions to God. So the, the author hints here that Yov could have done it, but he did not do it, right? And he also, the author also tells us that there is a very thin line between tefillah and tifla. That, that uh, it's not even a wordplay. It's a, it's a vowels play, right? Just move the, the chirik from here to here, and you'll get the, the word tefillah instead of tifla. So Yov does not, Yov prays and he does not turn against God, but it could have happened. And I think that we'll see that Yov is walking that thin line. He's always afraid of slipping and turning against God. Anyway, so that's that's the end of the, that's in the first chapter. It's packed with action. Yov loses everything because of that bet, that big game between God and the adversary. And still he does not turn against God. He accepts the judgment willingly. In chapter two, the beginning of chapter two, the adversary comes back to report to God. And God says to the adversary, have you noticed my servant Job? There is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. Same as in the first round. He still fears God. Uh, sorry, he still keeps his integrity. So you have incited me against him to destroy him for no good reason. Wait. Wait. Did God read the same story that we read? Right? God tells the adversary, you incited me? I did not incite you. I just stood there quietly, and you started talking about Eov. Right? It's just a, 
little uh, twist that the author adds here to the, to the story. The adversary answered, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give up for his life. The, the commentators usually understand this verse to say that the closest something is to us, the more precious it is. So therefore, if you will, uh, for example, if someone will be, if, if I will be attacked with a torch, right, with fire, my instinctive reaction would be to shield my face with my hand. My hand is going to get burned, but I'm saving my face. Um, and therefore, the adversary says, Eov is willing to sacrifice his children as long as he's alive. As long as you didn't touch him, this is okay. Which is a questionable argument because I think uh, from, from my experience, from what I know, parents uh, cherish the life of their children much more than they do theirs. They are willing to risk their life, sacrifice their lives to, ch- to save their children. And if, God forbid, a parent loses a child, this is something that they would never recover from. So a lame argument here. Another flaw uh, in, in, in the story that we have to notice. But the, the, and it's here in order to present the next argument. But lay a hand on his bones and his flesh he will surely blaspheme you to your face. So again, we see that the concept, that idea of blasphemy or blessing God is a central concept in this book, uh, the story of Job. So uh, the Lord, Hashem says to the adversary, see, he's in your power, only spare his life. So do whatever you want to him, but keep him alive because we need to hear him talking. This is uh, uh, what is called white waterboarding, right? Basically, Torture him, but just keep him hanging there so we could talk to him and get information from him. The adversary departed from the presence of the Lord and inflicted a severe inflammation on Job from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. So now Job is reduced to sort of a subhuman uh, level. He's, he can't even tolerate being in his own body. He took a potchet to scratch himself as he sat in ashes. And here... We are presented with the first argument regarding theodicy, um, which I, th- I believe is the central theme of the book that will lead us to uh, morality as well. His wife said to him, you still keep your integrity, blaspheme God and die. But he said to her, you talk as any shameless swoon might talk. Should we accept only good from God and not accept evil? For all that, Job said nothing sinful. In Hebrew, Now that's another layer to what we read before. Earlier it says, He did not sin. Now it says, He did not sin with his lips. Meaning he didn't say anything evil, uh, wrong, but he might have thought that. But what happens here with Eov's wife? What is, what, is the, what is the exchange between them? Um, that's my theory. I think that... Uh, what Eov's wife tells him is that the system doesn't work. Your whole life, and we'll see it later in the book, she tells him your whole life, your actions were guided by the need to be protected, by the assurance that if you do good, God will protect you, God will reward you, and everything will be fine. But you see that it's not true because you're a perfect person you did everything right, yet you are suffering in, an, in a horrible way. 
it means that the system doesn't work. So the only thing you could do is commit suicide. Basically, what his wife tells him is commit suicide. And she says, as you commit suicide, don't just jump off the roof. Tell God what you think about him. Tell him that the, the blessings that you gave him all your life did not work. And, and now, now uh, your ultimate act will be to curse God. This is what Eov's wife says. The system doesn't work. Commit suicide. Get out of the system. We're not talking here about the afterlife. This is not something that is even mentioned in this, uh, in this discussion. Uh, to, the, to the contrary, in most of the book, Eov would talk about the, the world to come, what happens after death, as the ultimate rest for all, for the wicked and the good, the mighty and the, and the meek. That, there's no discussion of the afterlife. And Yov says, you talk like a shameless woman. And what's surprising here is that we have a man who is a perfect person, right? Righteous, a believer, a faithful person, married to a woman, we don't know her name, typical, right? Women's names are not that important in Tanakh. Uh, but no, we don't know her name. And I, I assume that they were married for a while. If they have 10 children who are uh, throwing parties together, the oldest must be in his 30s. So they've been married for a while. Yet, it seems that Eov's wife was not influenced by his behavior. Whatever he taught, whatever he believed in, whatever he professed, did not affect her. And that adds to what we mentioned before about the sacrifices that it brings for his children. Is it possible that Eov is not a good educator? That he's just doing what's right, and but remains within his bubble, but the people around him are not impacted? He is the one who's bringing sacrifice for his children, and he is the one uh, who's not affecting his wife. And there's a proof for that, which I did not include in this source sheet, but if you, uh, if you search in Tanakh for uh, other uh, occurrences of, uh, of Eov, you will find him in the book of Yehezkel, in the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 16. Ezekiel says, if uh, a disaster uh, befalls a land, and there are three righteous people there, Noah, Daniel, Ve'yov, Right and 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 the Navi counts three four different types of disaster: famine, sword, uh, meaning war, uh, a plague. Basically, the four uh, writers of the apocalypse. Uh, and if it, all these things come to the land, and those three people are there, they with their righteousness will save themselves. So I don't know about Daniel, but I think that we all can think about Noah as a person who only cared about himself or his immediate family and saved only uh, himself. And so Hezkel is pointing out also this possibility that Eov is a person who only cares about himself uh, and his family, but he doesn't think that his family has to be righteous. As long as he's righteous, he's covering for them. He's, he's the, the primary uh, health insurance holder, right? They're all under his, uh, his coverage. Um, and with all that, Eov does not sin with his, uh, with his lips. So the first 
Um, the first approach to the question of theodicy is presented here by Eov's wife, who says basically the system doesn't exist, it doesn't work. If you want not to suffer, if you want to really be sure that you're not going to suffer in this life, don't be alive. That's it. Okay, now Eov finally speaks. Afterward, Job began to speak and cursed the day of his birth. He spoke up and said, Perish the day on which I was born, and the night it was announced a male has been conceived. So Yov is a step away from blaspheming God, right? Because he's uttering a curse, but it's not against God. It's against his day. This is a this is a verse, by the way, that for me is very uh, very meaningful. We used to read in my house when I was a kid. I would study with my grandfather. We would go over the whole Tanakh every year, um, and that pasuk is where we he taught me that we switch from the melody of the uh, of the five scrolls. That's how you read the story up to this point to the special melody of Eov, and uh, and it was a verse that. Uh, that sometimes where he was really, um, I think when my grandfather was uh, was caught in thoughts about the, the difficult life that he had, he would have said that, you know, rarely, but, uh, you know, with the tune. Has a, you know, more um, impact when you hear it with the, with the ta'amim. But basically what Yov is saying, Perish the day on which I was born and the night it was announced a male has been conceived. Why does he curse the day and the night in which he was born or conceived? I skip a couple of Pesukim to read this. Because it did not block my mother's womb and hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, expire as I came forth from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me or breasts for me to suck? For now would I be lying in repose, asleep, and at rest. Eov's ideal world is a world in which he is not born at all. Right? Uh, so in a way, he says the same thing as his wife says. Only that she says you should commit suicide and leave this world. And he says, once you're born, there's nothing you could do. There could be another layer to what he says, and that is... He curses the day in which he was born, uh, and I think it might be um, it might be a hint to the idea of astrology that the day in which you were born determines your destiny. And then he says, like he was born Friday the thirteenth. Says I wish there were calendars where there's no Friday the thirteenth, right? Like people uh, building uh, buildings without the with no thirteenth floor. Right, going directly from the 12th to the 14th, as if the 14th is not the 13th now. <laughs> but in any case, I think Eov says that. In other words, he says what his wife said: the system doesn't work. There's no good. There's no evil. It's it's random, or at at, at best, it depends on the day in which you were born. And then he continues to say he he wishes to not have been born. Says that there was no need for me to be received by my mother by caring uh, uh, adults. I would have died. It would have been much better to me. And then he says this: For what I feared has overtaken me, 
What I dreaded had come upon me. I had no repose, no quiet, no rest, and trouble came. What is he of dreading? What does he fear? Right? What, what is this great fear that Eov has? We, we, we know that he has that fear of cursing God, but there's another fear looming behind that. So, second approach, right? We'll, we'll keep that aside and moving along. Uh, it's hard to squeeze the, the discussion of the book of Eov into 45 minutes, but I'll do what I can. So, uh, Eov's wife says, commit suicide. Eov, Eov says, once I'm born, there's no choice. I wish... I had never been born at all, right? Echoing Freddie Mercury. Uh, and now in, in chapter four, I'm skipping. Uh, we're going to one of Eov's friends. Eov, according to the, to the book, has three friends. Eliphaz Temani, Bildad Ashurhit, Sofar Anamati, all uh, grandiose and sound like fictitious names. And now here Eliphaz the Temanite says in reply, and this is the kind of words of consolation that I've heard more than once in uh, in Shiva calls or, or, or eulogies. And these words are coming from Eov's friend, remember, not his enemy. He says this, if one ventures a word with you, sorry, that's the uh, Safari engine. Yeah. Uh, he says, if one ventures a word with you, will it be too much? Like once, when I try to talk to you, you can't, you can't take it. It's too difficult for you. But who can hold back his words? Meaning, I, I must speak. I can't hold it in. So see, you have encouraged many. You have strengthened failing hands. Your words have kept him who stumbled from falling. You have braced need, knees that gave way. But now that it overtakes you, it is, it is too much. It reaches you and you are unnerved. Any of you who's done chaplaincy, counseling, therapy, right, can tell that this is not, right, not the right approach. This is not what you want to hear. He's broken. He's, he's devastated. He's grieving. He's screaming out at God. And now Eliphaz says, oh, you can't take it? You were able to, to comfort everyone, but when he touches you, that's it? You, you are unnerved? Is not your piety, is not your piety, your confidence, and in your integrity, your hope? Think now, what innocent men ever perished? Where have the upright been destroyed? Read this passage. What innocent men ever perished? Where have the upright been destroyed? The central question of theodicy. So what is Eliphaz saying, basically? If someone, since no, one, no innocent men ever perished, it must be that all who have perished are not innocent men. Since no upright person have been destroyed, it must be that all who have been destroyed are not upright. So he tells Eov, you think that you're righteous, you think that you're upright and innocent, but you're not. And here again, we ask ourselves, Eliphaz, where do you live? Which world, what kind of world you live in where you think that innocent men never perish, right? That the upright never suffer. But Eliphaz basically represents 
the the third approach of in the book of Job to, to theodicy. There is the, there is a system, and the system works perfectly. If there's punishment, there must have been sin, and the reward only comes to those who are good. Now, Yov continues. I skipped a couple of chapters. There's a long, this, this book, uh, just a side comment, I think, delivers a revolutionary uh, new theology to the world of the Tanakh, a revolutionary theology. And because it's so explosive and revolutionary, it had to be wrapped in under uh, layers of uh, bubble wrap, uh, superfluous words, repetitious ideas that you really have to dig deep to find the central the, the the message of the book, which I also believe, and I, some scholars uh, are of the opinion that was written by Yirmiyahu, that has many similarities to the book of Yirmiyahu, to the book of Echa, and even to some parts of Tehillim, also attributed to Yirmiyahu. And now Yov says, after responding to Eliphaz, starts with this pasuk: Ma enoshti What is man that you make much of him? Uh, so if we just stop here, this reminds us of, uh, of uh, chapter 8 in Psalms, where the poet says, It's also a pasuk that we say uh, at a funeral, right? What is man that you, you take heed of him? What is a, a human being that you, you gave him such a greatness? But Eov concludes that thought differently. He says, what is man that you make much of him, that you fix your attention upon him? Fix your attention upon him. That could be a good thing. That could be a bad thing. Where does he have take it? Does he take it to the good place or to the bad place? So let's continue. You inspect him every morning. Examine him every minute. Doesn't sound that good. Will you not look away from me for a while? Let me be till I swallow my spittle. And now we see that Eov is very, very upset with God. Basically, he tells God, you don't let go of me for one second. You're constantly behind my shoulder, looking at what I'm doing. Like he says, I can't even swallow without you noticing. That's another fear that Eov has. The fear of God is always lurking behind him, always watching him, always analyzing him, always criticizing and maybe punishing him. Uh, he says, if I have sinned, what I have done to you, watcher of men, why make of me your target and a burden to myself? Why do you not pardon my transgression and forgive my iniquity? For soon I shall lie down in the dust. When you seek me, I shall be gone. Eov says, why is it so important to you? So he starts with that idea of what is the human being that, 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 uh, that you make much of him, right? But he ends with, I don't deserve that and I don't need that. Just let me be. Why am I important to you? He does not understand that. And that's, what, that's where we start seeing Eov's complaints. Eov is not happy with the situation. Um, I have to move a little faster. Uh, go, uh, skipping to chapter 8. 
Bildad the Shohite, right? Bildad Ashohi answers, How long will you speak such things? Your utterances are a mighty wind. Will God pervert the right? Will the Almighty pervert justice? If your son sins against him, he dispatched them for their transgression. Thank you so much, dear friend. I, at that point, if that would have been me, I would show them the way out and kick them down the stairs. This is not why I asked you to come. These are not words of consolation. He basically tells you, oh, your sons were sinners. They were punished. You are, he joins the Lifaz who says, you were a sinner, etc. Eov uh, answers, uh, after a while, after tell, by the way, in between, part of the, what I skipped, he says, Omnam yadati is a nice pasuk. He says, Omnam yadati ki atem am ve'imachem tamut chokma. He tells his three friends, I know that you are important people. You're like a nation. And when you perish, wisdom will disappear. This is the, the sarcasm in the book of Job. Uh, and he says, indeed, I know that it is so. Men cannot win a suit against God. If he insisted on a trial with him, he would not answer one charge in a thousand. But he goes on to say, I am blameless. I'm distraught. I'm sick of life. It is all one. Therefore, I say, he destroy the blameless and the guilty. In his response to his friends, he says, you're right. I cannot argue with God. I will not win an argument with him. But I know for sure that he destroys the blameless and the guilty. So Yov does question God's justice, right? It's very clearly in the book. And it's surprising that in the commentary, commentaries for, you know, hundreds or more than a thousand years, the rabbis kept defending Eov as someone who never lost his faith, never turned against God. This is very clearly an argument against God. In Hebrew, And Eov keeps on complaining. He says, it will be I who am in the wrong. Why then I should, should I waste effort? Says if at the end of the day, and here we get we, we we touch on the ethical question, right? On the question of ethics, why ethics important? If we believe in the system of reward and punishment, then we do what's right only in order to protect ourselves. But if we see that that system fails, then we say the system doesn't work. Then why should we bother? Why should we be good? Why should why should we strive to do good? It's not going to help us. If the system would not have been self-centered, if the system would have been do good to help others, it's not going to benefit you. If we would have been told from the, ver from the very beginning, do good because that's the right thing to do. Because the ethical thing to do is to care about others, to not hurt others, to not take what belongs to them. Not because it's going to benefit you. Yeah, there will be, there will be a side benefits because if others will behave the same way you do, you will benefit as well. Society will be a just society. The world will be a better place. But we're not told that. We're told if you do good, you'll go to heaven. If you do good, God will reward you. And then what happens when God does not reward you? You turn against God and maybe you turn against humanity. It is a known, it is a known uh, fact that a lot of uh, uh, sociopaths or, or criminals who sort of lo lose emotions and don't care about what they do and about the consequences are people who suffered tremendously in their childhood and felt that there's no justice, that the, uh, that the, the evildoers are not punished. And this is what Eov says here. Why should I waste efforts? 
And, and, and he goes again with his sarcasm. If I washed with soap, cleanse my hands with lye, you would dip me in muck till my clothes would abhor me. He tells God, it's not going to help. I could be the best that could be and you're going to throw me in the mud and say, you're a sinner. Nothing I'm going to do is going to be good enough for you. Uh, and then he goes on to maybe, uh, maybe the ultimate blasphemy in the book of Yov. Verse 32 in chapter 9. He is not a man like me that I can answer him. You're right, he tells his friends. I cannot argue with God. That we can go to law together? No. Uh, no arbiter is between us to lay his hand on us both. If he would only take his rod away from me and not let his terror frighten me, then I would speak out without fear of him. For I know myself not to be so. So he basically says, the only reason I... To not argue with God is because God is more powerful. But if we had someone more powerful than both of us, then I would tell God to his face what I think of him, right? And why I'm right. Tell me that that's not blasphemy, right? In the dictionary of the believer, right? Uh, and then Eov again uh, tells his friends, uh, you should know that God has wronged me uh, and, and, and treated me with injustice. I'm, uh, I'm going to go very briefly over the next, uh, next chapter because uh, we're running out of time. But in chapter 29, Eov speaks nostalgically about his youth. He says, when I was young, when God protected me, his candle, his light was upon my head, uh, I washed my, uh, my feet with, uh, with butter and uh, rivers of oil ran uh, around me when the, uh, the leads saw me, they would hide because of, you know, out of respect. The elder would, uh, would stand up. The, the minister would respect me because I helped the poor. I helped the orphans. I helped the widows. I wore justice like a coat. I was the eyes of the blind. I was the father of the poor. He keeps on talking about that. I was so great at one point. <clears throat> um, and then uh, that's the end of chapter 29. Okay, so up, up to here, to sum up what we've had, we get to, to little uh, sections of the book of Eov. God incites the, the adversary against Eov. Uh, he is suffering. He lost everything he had. His wife says, the system doesn't work. You have to commit suicide. That's your way out. Uh, Eov says, I cannot commit suicide. I'm in the system. It does not work. There's no, basically, there's no system. God does whatever he wants. And then he goes on to add later on, God distorts justice. God punishes the, the, the evildoer and the innocent together. And uh, the third approach that of his friends is, God is always right. The system does work. What Eov is saying, and that, and that leads me to the, to the question I raised before about his fear. What Eov is saying is, I do whatever God tells me to do because God is more powerful. I cannot defy God. So Eov is doing all the right things to protect himself. Not because he believes that's the right thing to do. And I think that's the message of the book. Before we even get to Elihu, who delivers the final message. We understand that what Eov is doing is wrong. 
in on a practical level, it's perfect. Yes, he's doing all the right things. He's a good guy. He takes care of the poor and the widow and the needy. Uh, he's he's the, the 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 defender of of everyone. But he's only doing it to defend himself. If at one point his protection is taken away, Eov would go out and kill everyone because it doesn't matter. That's that's the problem of an ethical value system that is self-centered. Sort of the moral of thieves. I'm just doing it so others will not harm me. This is this is why God in, incites the adversary in the beginning. He says, did you see Eov? Eov seems to be a good person, but he's not. I mean, he is technically, right now he is a good person, but he has the potential to go horribly wrong. And if all of society behaves like him, all of society will go wrong. So there is a, we have to understand the whole system of reward and punishment differently, but it's hard because the Tanakh so far has presented that system as you do good, you'll be rewarded. Uh, rain will come, you will win, uh, you know, you'll uh, uh, conquer your enemies, etc., etc. You'll do evil, you'll be destroyed, the, you'll be exiled, etc. It doesn't work. So now Elihu comes. Uh, Elihu is a fourth friend that it was not mentioned before. So he's like uh, the mysterious character in the story. His name, I think, is symbolic. It has positive elements and negative elements. Is Elihu, he is my God. Berech El, he who blesses God. Habuzi, he's one who's being uh, disgraced, maybe because his uh, message is not well received, which is befitting uh, for Yirmiyahu. And is Mimishpahat Ram. Ram is elevated, but it's also the verb, the same root of the name Yirmiyahu, alludes to the author. Uh, and why is uh, Elihu upset? He's upset at Iov for thinking that he is right against God. And he is upset at Iov's friend for saying that Iov is wicked. So what is his message? Uh, Elihu waited and just know that Elihu starts talking in chapter 32 and he doesn't finish until chapter 35. It's a very, uh, very long speech, not what you want from your rabbi on a Saturday morning. Uh, and Elihu says, Do you think it is just to say I am right against God? If you ask how it benefits you, what have I gained from not sinning? Um, before I conclude, I want to say, I think that this, uh, this section, the chapter 35 in Job, is one of the most important paragraphs in all of Tanakh. Because uh, Elio presents the question, you ask, what do I gain by not sinning? I shall give you a reply, you along with your friends. I will tell you, he will tell us, what do we gain by not sinning? Behold the heavens and see, look at the skies high above you. If you sin, meaning God's is God is transcendental, He's the creator of the universe, He doesn't need you. When we do mitzvot, it's not to benefit God, He doesn't need us. If you sin, what do you do to Him? If your transgressions are many, how do you affect Him? If you are righteous, what do you give Him? What does He receive from your hand? So it goes against the grain of the idea of theodicy as we know it from the earlier books of Tanakh. Eliud turns everything over, says, you're not doing anything to please God. And you're not going to be rewarded for your doing, but rather your wickedness affects men like yourself, your sins. 
your righteousness mortals. This is if you want to uh, crystallize everything in six words, is this. Your wickedness affects people like you. Your righteousness affects people like you. That's the reward and punishment. If we do right, if society does right, then society eventually will be uh, a just society. The world will be a better place. The oceans will not be polluted. But whatever, you know, all the things that we care about could, could come true. And if we do wrong, we are the ones who are going to suffer. Our descendants, or not our descendants, the descendants of others. It's a collective effort. It's not for me or others. One question remains, why did God create the world? But I think the message that the book of Yov delivers is this. The system of reward and punishment is not a direct one. It is a global one. And the value of Torah mitzvot, our, our ethical system, is that we do what's right because that's the right thing to do. To care for others. To protect the needy and, and, and the poor and the weak. Not because I'm like in chapter 29 of Yov, I'm going to be praised for that and respected for that because this is the right thing to do. So all in all, this is a, uh, in a nutshell what I wanted to, uh, to present here. There is a journey through the book of Yov, four different schools of thought on how to approach the Odyssey and this revolutionary bomb at the end, uh, at chapter 35, delivered by Eliu, saying, when we do good, we benefit other people. And when we do evil, we affect other people. And if we all think that way, the world can be perfect. So, amazing, amazing, Rav Chaim. Thank you so much. Thank you thank so you. much for all of this. Hevra, we want to open up the conversation. Uh, who has a question they'd like to throw out? Feel free to unmute yourself. I see a Cheryl. I don't know if that was an accident or not. Did your hand go up, Cheryl? Okay. Oh, uh, Jamal. Uh, Natano. Uh, yeah, um... <laughs> Uh, I, I guess I have a question about how the Tanakh um, basically has an absence of, of certain women's names. Not in every case, because there are cases where certain women are named, but there's some where they're not. Yeah. And it's, it seems like maybe it's possible the Tanakh could teach us something about, about, like it's trying to tell us something on purpose when it doesn't speak about the names. And why I thought about that was... In the in the story where Eov has no influence over his wife, it's like she's not mentioned. He doesn't mm -hmm. see her, so how could he have any influence? Could be that's that's a good. Uh, I mean, in general, in the Tanakh, uh, mention less the name name of women um, unless they're ma a major character in the in the in the story. Uh, but here, I think your thought is uh, could be could be correct, especially when he, they use the word hatanevalot. The word nevela or naval is shameless, but also someone who's empty. No, like the word nevel, uh, which really means the hide of, a, of an animal that was blown to use as a, as a, as a wine jug or a, or a windpipe. Yes. Uh, great. All right. We have a question here from Nick. <clears throat> Hi, Rabbi Ovadia. Thank you for this. This was amazing. Um, one thing that a couple, I mean, a whole set of, a lot of things jumped out at me, but one thing that stuck with me was when he's, for what I feared has overtaken me, what I dreaded has come upon me. And I, my mind was just going, as you, you said that, like, was it a self-fulfilling prophecy? Did he cause this on himself? Like, did he influence fate to have oh. God and the Satan do this to him, you know? 
Yeah. Okay. So here's uh, maybe something that I failed to mention. You're right. The fear that he has, right, is the fear of punishment. But there's another fear that lurks under uh, underneath his, uh, uh, you know, maybe subconsciousness, and that's the fear of cursing God. That's why it's a major, it's a central theme in the book. He says he brings sacrifices for his children because mayhap, right? They cursed God. Uh, his wife tells him, go ahead, do what you're always afraid of doing. Go and curse God. And he keeps going back to that idea. And so why, and, and so when I'm thinking of that, the analogy, uh, maybe because I I, I uh, unfortunately had to work some in, in my, uh, uh, in the past, I worked in some hostile environment, right? And so you you know what it means to to work under a boss or, or a board that, you know, you, you don't get along with. Uh, and you hold yourself to not tell them or him or, you know, the boss what you think of them, right? So I think that's what Eov feels. Eov constantly goes around with those thoughts of God is unjust. God makes me do this. God could destroy me whenever he wants and I could not bring him to justice. But I should keep my mouth shut because if I speak up, he's going to destroy me. So that's the fear that he always has. And that's why in the first chapter... We read, he did not sin. The second chapter, he did not sin with his lips. Meaning he still manages, by the end of chapter two, to keep his lips tight. But later on, he lets loose a little bit. Great, great. Our next question was from Rabbi Steve Greenberg. Then I see a few other hands up as well after that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Chaim. That was really wonderful. I'm thinking a good deal, um, particularly because of the season, about uh, the difference between this read and, and the end of the book, where everything is solved by divine, uh, by the incommensurability of divine power, that the the moral problems are all erased because uh, human beings are are negligible, and and the power differential is such that we we can barely ask these questions, and 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 yet the book seems to argue against that read, right? Uh, in the way, so so there's an internal debate inside the book around how to address these questions because the moral question of tzaddik v'adavashvatovlo relates to the power differential between humans and God all the time, and. And on some level, I think Chazal are struggling to claim that the Brit makes God powerless too. Like God's love of us makes God powerless. And the, to, for the book to end with God's overwhelming power is the solution to the story seems somehow just to not to fit. In what a good, yeah. Such an amazing point, right? You know, uh, thank you, Rabbi, for your wisdom. Um, the... So in, in a way, when you say about God being powerless, it's true. God is not part of the equation. This is what, what uh, Eov says, being so powerful, uh, meaning that he is powerless to act because then he's going to tip the balance one way or another in, a, in an unfair way. Uh, just like, you know, when, when uh, if you let children make up basketball teams, they know exactly how to balance it, that no one team would be extremely powerful over the other because then the game, but then it makes the whole thing a game anyway. <laughs> Uh, that's one thought. The other thing about the conclusion of the book, uh, I, I see two different patterns. One that probably some of you know biblical critics will take will say, maybe that's a later addendum. 
you know, just to fix everything. The other would be, this is here, again, the author is here, my, my, in my mind, Yirmiyahu's way of covering up the message of the book. Maybe that's why the, the ending is like you say, too sweet, right? It's like the happily ever after. Like someone said, they always tell us, you know, the, the prince and the princess got married and they lived happily ever after. But no, no one ever tells us what happened when they had children, when they had to change diapers, when they were fighting with them, when the kid dropped out of high school or got into drugs, right? So everything is good. From now on, you know, Yov is happy. All of his troubles are forgotten. Who pays for his therapy, right? Or uh, Shalom Bayit sessions between his wife. Yeah, but yeah, thank you, Rob. And I'm going back to go, going to go back to this question and try to to, to analyze it even more. Later. We have time for our two last questions. We have Matthew and then Shlomiya. Shalom, Hazakovaruk. Thank you, Rabbi. I um, had a question about uh, how the story of Yov relates to Rambam's eleventh uh, principle about rewards and punishment, and um, uh, something I read from uh, Arya Kaplan about uh, in Devarim. It says the children shall not die because of their father's sins and how, how you thought about that when it relates to the story of Yo. Right. So, um, the, so the principles of Rambam uh, are based on principles that were presented by the rabbis. And the rabbis were the ones who were pushing the idea of uh, reward and punishment in its biblical, in its early biblical form, right? It was very important to them Uh but because they were struggling with the with how to explain the destruction, the Hoban, exile, and all that, they had to come up with a with the argument that all the promises only apply to the world to come and not, not to this life. So uh in other words, I would say that what Rambam, the eleven the 13 principles of Rambam, uh, that principle of, of reward and punishment is incompatible with the book of Yov. But the Yov is compatible with what Rambam says in Moreh Nebuchim, because in the Moreh, he does say that uh, God does not control our actions, and the consequences of our acts are uh, natural and, hum uh, and human, and we affect one another. Uh, the, the other question, um, the other uh, point that you brought up, well, I'm sorry, I got uh, caught up with the thing of Rambam. What was the other question? Oh, it was just uh, a part of that, what I read from Arya Kaplan's book. Oh, about, Arya Kaplan, uh, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Father dying for his... Uh, yes, yes, yes. So, uh, we, in, in Jewish law, parents do not, the children do not die for their parents' sin. Uh, but in, in the Tanakh itself, it says the there's another pasuk that contradicts that. And I think the answer is that uh, children do not suffer for their parents' iniquities in a in a uh, in the legal system. They will not be brought to justice uh, if the father stole. The, the The son will not be punished for that. But children are punished for their children for their parents' action in the natural form, just like Eliu says. Uh, parents who miss who who don't behave uh, have no moral values or ethics. Will, event, will influence their kids to behave the same way and the kids will suffer. So this is a, a case where kids do suffer for their parents' action, uh, but in the natural, because of natural consequences and not, uh, not because of the legal system. Uh, okay, so, so we, have, we have time for one more. Uh, Shlomaya, I believe. Yep. Audible? Yes, we can hear you. 
Thank you. Um, so I'm wondering whether the um, system of theodicy that you're outlining in EOV is uh, suggested or opened earlier in Tanakh, in Torah, where we have, um, say, the listings of rewards and punishments, as it were. I remember as a small child, um, I used to say, well, how could it rain on one person's field and not the person's field next door if one person was keeping um, Miswat and the other one was not? Um, and then I sort of eventually came to realize that it's not individual, it's about a uh, about creating a just society and participating in creating a just society. Um, and I'm wondering whether that is um, in accordance with this view and whether it actually started much earlier than um, than Eov and why then would it have been, um, if so, why would it be so difficult to bring out in Eov that it needs to be covered? Well, great question. I think that uh, there could be seeds of that uh, ideology early in, in the Torah. Um, there is a, uh, a prophecy, I think, in Amos or where it says, I will bring grain upon one field and, uh, uh, and prevent uh, rain from the field next to it. But if, to the question of why did this change, um, I think, and then this is my theory, maybe, you know, uh, you could, I don't know if everybody will accept it, but I think that the, uh, the idea of reward and punishment was basically a marketing strategy. That people would not accept the, uh, uh, the Torah as presented to them, such a demanding system um, with, a, with, a, with an invisible God if there was no reward and punishment. That was the way to sell it to people. But after a while, they had to grow. These are like the training wheels that had to be removed. Uh, after a thousand years, after the destruction, after everything that happened in Yirmiyahu's time, uh, it was about time to come and and, uh, and tell people this is how we should behave. Uh, so um, that that way, I think the transition happens uh, later on. But even even today, it's hard for people to accept it. People want to know uh, constantly if something happened to them. Why did it happen? Why did God do this to me? Um, why did this person get sick? It's hard for them to accept the argument that it's a natural cause. This is the way the world behaves. And it is also very difficult for people to believe that if we uh, if we do good and if, if we avoid even little uh, transgressions like parking violation or, uh, you know, um, uh, throwing, uh, you know, littering or not recycling the right way or not talking nicely to our friend, that it could have the butterfly effect and eventually bring a, a better world for all. People find it very hard to believe. It's easier for them to stick uh, with that model of my own world, my direct connection with God. I'll do good. He'll reward me. I'll do evil. He'll punish me. Thank you so much. All right, friends. Thank you so much uh, to Rav Chaim. Uh, we appreciate you and your, uh, your time. Uh, we thank you from Ariel Tzedek and all of our team who made this happen. Uh, I want to make sure everybody knows that we have an event this Thursday with Rabbanit Bracha Jaffe. Please make sure to tune in. That's uh, going to be 11.30 a.m. Eastern time. Everybody enjoy. We will have this recording up in just a few moments. Email us at info at if you'd like to learn more. Again, thank you so much, Rav Chaim, for your time and your amazing learning. Everybody Thank take care. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so Thank much. You.